We ready? Good morning, ladies. I, uh, I feel a little bit like I've had a marathon sprint, which I realize is a, an oxymoron, but I left at 2 o'clock last Wednesday for a trip with my daughter to Michigan to visit two colleges, which it's kind of hard to even talk about. <laughs> um, but there was, they were great visits, and they're great schools. And they'd be lucky to have my daughter. So we got back late Sunday night, and uh, so I have no idea what this lecture's going to be like. <laughs> Obviously, if I'm crying before it starts, y'all may want to leave right now. Uh, yeah, uh, so it's, it's been a kind of a whirlwind sprint, and, and it doesn't end until I teach D6 tomorrow night. And then maybe I can rest a little after that. But uh, do you have any questions about this uh, section of Chapter 4 of Ephesians? No questions? Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, what, Kay? No. <laughs> Do you want me to? I mean, I, I, I'm just going to talk just sort of like overall about that creed. Uh, not very much. Do you want to know what the three are? Or what the three threes are? Okay, we can do that. Um, so, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that's about all I have memorized. When we get there, I'll do that. Remind me, okay? No. It's, it's not important how they're grouped together. It's just theologians love structure. I mean, before every three verses, it's like, this section is structured like, and I skip most of that. This is one time that I didn't. Uh, skip that. It's just interesting. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in there from words that you've never heard of before and inclusios. Actually, I talk about inclusios at some point, too, but, uh, and literary devices, and that's what is there in the creed. Susan, did you find it? Um, question 17, what does Paul mean when he says Jesus has descended? Yes, what does Paul mean when he says Jesus has had descended? And I will definitely talk about that. Great. I'm only going to give you one answer. Because in that case, I think there's only one right answer, which sounds really arrogant. <laughs> but, but to me, it's just, there's not scriptural support, real, true. To, to get any other um, interpretation out of that, you have to take pretty obscure passages that we're not totally sure what they mean and create theologies out of them. So... Um, I'll, I will. My Presbyterian friends may disown me after that, but, uh, <laughs> but I will give a considered opinion on that. Is that better than one right answer? Okay. Any other questions? Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day and this time together. Thank you so much for um, the time we can spend around your word and studying your word and and um, hearing what it has to say to us. Father, I pray that you would give all of us open minds and hearts to hear what your word has to say and to um, yield our lives before you um, for these next minutes, Father, and, and for the rest of our lives. And I pray uh, as the week comes up and the ladies are sort of reflecting back over the last couple chapters of Ephesians, I pray that you would bless them, bless me as I do that as well, and, uh, and then bless their time together next week in community with one another and, and uh, talking about what you have uh, been doing in their lives. So just thank you and praise you for all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we've, we've reached a turning point in Ephesians with chapter 4. The first three chapters, and I literally wrote down here, this tells you how tired I was at the time. I'd walked all over Hope College's campus all day. It, it, says, for, it says first three chapters, one through three. Yes, Amy. <laughs> Usually the first three chapters are one through three. Uh, are primarily theology. They are not exclusively theology, but they are primarily theology, where Paul's focus has been the overwhelming uh, things that God has given us, the overwhelming um, uh, blessings that we have in Christ that God has given us, and then praising God for that and praying um, for the believers. And then beginning in chapter 4, Paul is going to tell us that these blessings demand a response. We can't just read them and go, wow, that's great, and walk away unchanged. Those blessings demand a response. So the last three chapters, which would be 4, 5, and 6, which actually is also written down on here, are primarily application. Not exclusively. In fact, after the very first few verses of application, he's going to skip back into theology again with the creed. So um, it's not exclusively application, but it is primarily that. These chapters outline for us the proper response. The proper response to all the blessings we have in Christ. Since God has so blessed us in Christ, the only response that makes any sense is to obey him and to follow hard after him. Throughout scripture, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, obedience is a response to what God has already done on our behalf. God acts and we respond. We obey uh, because of what he has done. And that is what Paul is going to tell us again here. Now, chapter 4 begins with the word, um, the word picture of walking. It's not obvious. Hello, Beckers. Okay. Um, it's not obvious in the NIV because the NIV says to live. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. That word is actually walk in the Greek. And in the Greek, it's this word here, peripateo. If I told you, I really have no idea how to pronounce these words. But if you just say it, nobody knows that. But if you hear somebody like Tim Wiebe say it differently, listen to him, because he's taken Greek and I have not. So, uh, but that word is actually walk. Do not walk. I, I, or excuse me, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And this idea of walking, by the way, Paul, the next more than chapter and a half, like from 4.1 to 5.21, Paul's teaching is going to be centered around this image of walking um, and, and this idea of intentionality. And, you know, as I was thinking about this this morning, and I will just be honest with you, in the shower, which is the place where I think the best, I'm sorry, but it's just true. And uh, I was thinking about how my husband every night takes our dog for a walk, so much so that the dog knows what the word walk is. So much so even that when dad says, do you want to go for a walk? He jumps up and down and jumps on Jeff and gets so excited. When I say that, he goes, you can't even walk yourself. How are you going to take me for a walk? He really does. And then he looks at dad like, what? What's she talking about? And, and that walk, is that's an intentional thing. Jeff, Jeff is intentional in taking him for a walk and, and has a path that he takes in that walk 
with Barkley every night. And you don't, you know, unless you're my dad who took walks with Alzheimer's and got someplace like, how did I get here? That never happens, does it? You go out for a walk, you intend to do that, and you know where you're going, and you know where you're going to end up. That's kind of the image Paul has here. There is an amount of intentionality to walking in a manner worthy of our calling. It implies a pattern of behavior, a way of living, which is why the NIV uh, in, interprets it to live. Uh, it's a way of life that follows Christ, that follows the Savior. Um, and so Paul begins that by telling us to live a life worthy of our calling. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the, keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So Paul begins by saying, as a prisoner of the Lord, actually, literally, uh, it says a prisoner in the Lord. But he says that, he's already told them that, that he's a prisoner of the Lord. But he, uh, he's strengthening his ap appeal by repeating this fact that he's a prisoner. Because what he's saying is, the very same one, the very same Paul, who is asking you to do these things, is now in prison on your behalf. Is now in prison because of his ministry to you. Boy, that gives it some oomph, doesn't it? When, when he says that. And so he's strengthening his appeal by saying, look, I'm suffering on your account in kind of a sideways way saying that. This first verse, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, is like a thesis statement, like a summary statement over the rest of Ephesians. Uh, the, most of the rest of Ephesians is going to be an explanation of what it means to live a life worthy of our calling how we do that, how we do that in families, how we do that together with believers, how we do that as individual followers of Christ, and explaining that, what that means. But this word calling is not a call to ministry. A lot of times we think, like my daughter Katie, changed her idea of a major because all of a sudden God spoke to her as kind of freaks people out. But really, honestly, she felt like God was calling her to social work. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not a call to ministry. It's a call to follow, a call to follow Christ. And every Christian is called by God. Every Christian is called to follow. And that call to follow, or at least what made that call possible, came at a very high cost, at the cost of the life of God's Son. Our salvation is free. But it's not cheap. It costs God the life of his son. In fact, Dr. Snodgrass says this. He says, if God's love is so great, if his salvation is so powerful, if God has granted such reconciliation, then believers should live accordingly. They should value God's love enough to be shaped by it. And that's what Paul is telling his, his readers. He's saying, be shaped by these truths. Be, put these truths at the center of your lives. Live a life that's worthy of all that God has done for you. Now, the rest of these two verses, verses 2 and 3, are not actually more commands. In fact, this verse 1, live a life worthy of your calling, is the only true command in these first three verses. The, the, these are, part of, are, are prepositional phrases like with all humility 
or participles, bearing with one another in love. They are not actually true commands, even though in, in the Greek, in the English, they sound that way. Be humble. That's, that's a command. Um, but in the Greek, what they're doing is they're explaining what it means to live a life worthy of the calling. This is, this is um, uh, what a life worthy of the calling looks like. It is a life um, of gentleness and humility and patience. It is a life that puts up with others in love. It is a peacemaking life. And these qualities are qualities in a good sense that war against our egos and our pride. We cannot, we, let me put it this way, we must lay down our pride in order to be gentle when we'd rather be harsh. We must lay down our pride to put up with someone who is difficult to put up with. And so these are our qualities that, that, that prevent that pride and that ego from growing within us. So let's talk about them then. Humility. Humility literally means lowliness of mind. It is the opposite of haughtiness. It is the op opposite of pride. The best commentary on what it means to be humble ever written, Paul wrote in Philippians 2, where he says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, if anyone ever had a right to say, do you know who I am? It was Jesus, and he never did. He was God, and he chose instead to become a servant and to die on a cross. That is the humility we are to emulate. That's a high calling. That's a difficult calling. Humility is one of the things that is part of a life worthy of the calling. Gentleness is a consideration of others. It is a willingness to wave rather than to assert our rights. I heard one pastor put it this way, we give up our rights for righteousness. That's what it means to be gentle. It is not weakness. Oftentimes, our culture sees gentleness as weakness, but indeed it takes tremendous strength of character to be gentle when what we really want to be is harsh. Patience. You know what? Etym from the etymology of patience, it really comes from a background that means to have a wide and big soul. Isn't that interesting? To have a wide and big soul. So Dr. Snodgrass says that, that patience is that largeness of soul that can endure annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. That's patience. To not be so narrow uh, with what has to happen um, for you to be happy. And then he says, bearing with one another in love. Actually, a better translation would be putting up with one another in love. I love that Paul understands that sometimes people are just not easy to get along with, even Christians. It's like, man, this, this one's tough. This one's tough to love, and he recognizes it. And he says, you know what a life worthy of the calling? Bears with others in that. Even when they're hard to love, 
We love them. And that requires God's help. It requires God's love living through us. And that's why it says that we bear with one another in love. And then he says to make every effort to maintain unity through the bond of peace. Make every effort, literally there, means be zealous for unity. Be zealous for peace with others. And he calls it the unity of the Spirit, which means it's the unity that the Spirit gives. It is not something that we can manufacture. It's not something that we can create. Paul here is telling us to value unity. In, indeed, he is telling us to value others above ourselves. Paul still, as he has throughout Ephesians, has an eye on living in community. Uh, in this passage, because these are characteristics that build and strengthen community. It is so much easier to live side by side with those who are patient and gentle and bear with others than it is with people who are short-tempered and must have their way, and this is how it has to be done. Those things destroy community. These things build unity. But in order to do that, it requires that we take our focus off ourselves and put our focus on God and on others instead. And it requires that we, our lives not be dictated by our own pride and our own ego. This is what Dr. Snodgrass says. He says, Christianity is a God-directed, Christ-defined, other-oriented religion. Only with such direction away from self do we find ourselves. So now we move on to this creed in verses 4 through 6. So he's going to kind of jump back into theology mode here. And he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there's one body. Uh, and one hope, and one spirit, and one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then one Father who is over all, and through all, and in all. So those are the, the three, three. This, this creed is part of what unifies us. It's, it's, it's kind of the reason that we have unity, these things that, that unify us. And, and notice that everything we believe, we hold in common all the essential things that we believe that are written here in this creed, we hold in common with other believers. Christianity is a shared faith. It is never, was never intended. There are no Lone Ranger Christians, even if they try to be. It is intended to be a shared faith held in common. And we are unified by these theological truths. But you might say, one baptism? Really one baptism? Because I'm telling you right now, there are a whole lot of people fighting over infants or adults. Sprinkling or dunking? How do you, even the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where does that fit in? What Paul is saying is that the only true baptism that there is, regardless of method, regardless of timing, is baptism into Jesus Christ. That is the only one true baptism, is baptism into Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to get into the rest of it. Um, so, in fact, Paul is essentially saying there is only one true gospel, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he's going to kind of turn a corner and begin talking about grace, but in kind of an unexpected way, a different 
sort of way in verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So um, what Paul is telling us here is that within this unity, there is diversity that um, Paul has taken great pains to tell us that we are unified in Christ, that we have unity in Christ, not just in these verses we're looking at today, but throughout the letter to the Ephesians. However, unity does not mean sameness. We are not Stepford Christians. If you want to know if God values diversity, go take a walk outside, go to the zoo. He created some funky, funny things, and he digs that. We are all different, and Paul recognizes that. We were created to be different from one another. Um, we are created as unique beings with specific gifts that are intended to be used for God's glory. And that is the primary point of this somewhat, admittedly somewhat convoluted in, um, passage. Uh, and uh, that's the, the primary point that Paul is making here. But he talks about, I'll get back to that in a minute, that sort of difficult part. But he talks about grace in an unexpected way. It has an unexpected meaning. And for Paul here, grace means gifts. Gifts that have been given to us to be used for God's glory. In other words, spiritual gifts, which Paul talks about in a number of other passages as well in, in other letters that he wrote. Spiritual gifts to be used in ministry. Essentially what Paul is saying here is this is grace for ministry. And all of us receive that. Uh, now, but we receive different gifts. We don't receive the same gifts. And that's the meaning of as Christ apportioned it. As Christ apportioned it doesn't mean he gives more gifts or better gifts or stronger gifts to some people than others. It just means that there is a diversity of gifts within the body. It means that he gives different gifts to different people, all of which are important and all of which are intended to be used for God's glory. So what of this quotation from, uh, from Psalm 68, verse 18, when he ascended on high, he took captives and gave gifts to his people? Paul is using Psalm 68 as scriptural support for his statement that the ascended Christ gave gifts to us, gave these spiritual gifts through the Spirit, through his Spirit that he sent, gave these spiritual gifts to us. This could be a lecture all in itself, but that's the primary point. He's, he's undergirding his statement that Christ gives us these gifts. Um, now, but what about this descent? What is this descent that he has in mind? Um, really, and it says the lower earthly regions, that doesn't mean under the earth. That means the earth itself. He was... Uh, you know, Lord of heaven, and he came to earth. The only descent that makes any sense to me is his incarnation. That Jesus ascended after his ministry on earth assumes at some point he descended, which he did when he became a human being, when he was born 
uh, on this earth. And so that is the descent. His incarnation is the descent. Um, now, what about this, the trains, took many captives on his train. Paul is tying that into, he's giving a word picture, and he's tying that into chapter one, where he said that God's intent is to sum up all things in heaven and on earth under even one head, even Christ. He's giving a word picture that shows that, and what that's saying, the captives are evil spirits. And the word picture is of a victory parade, that after the Romans would win a war, they would parade back to Rome, and they would take their prisoners of war, a war in the parade through all the towns so everyone could see they'd been taken captive. And that's the word picture that Paul is giving them, uh, or that Psalm 68 gives as a messianic psalm, of, of Christ having taken captive every evil spirit. But all of that is kind of a little off track. Paul's main point is that all believers are given these gifts to be used for God's glory. Um, and then he goes on to talk about it, and, and I changed things up a little bit on this next part. I hope I don't confuse you, but I changed my mind about uh, how to present this next part in 11 through 16. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So here, Paul, I think, is adding, I think Paul is possibly adding to this idea of giving gifts, giving spiritual gifts, and is saying that actually the people, the leaders of the church, the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists are actually the gifts themselves. They are a gift to the church. I don't think that negates that Christ gives gifts to individual believers, but his focus has shifted a little bit here, and I think he, he may be uh, kind of saying Paul does this a lot, where there are two possible ways to look at it, and Paul actually means both. And so I think he does mean that Christ gives gifts to individual believers, but that the leadership that leads us to grow in Christ and builds us up and equips us for service is also a gift um, to us. So, you know, it's October and it's Pastor Appreciation Month, so uh, do something about that because your, your pastor is a gift um, to, you, to you and to the body. Um, so either way, either whether you think of spiritual gifts or you think of the leadership, the, the, the uh, teachers and pastors as the gift, either way, the purpose is the same. The purpose uh, the, is that these gifts are given in order to build up the church and to equip its members for service. Ministry in a church was never intended to be done only by the professional pastors and leaders. The body is supposed to do the work of the church. So the result of that, the result of the church then being built up and being equipped is, again, unity, we see. That part of this building up is part of what unifies us. That unity has been achieved by Christ. On the one hand, 
It has already been achieved by Christ. On the other hand, at the same time, unity is something uh, which, which must be maintained. It's something at which we must work to keep. Unity is not maintenance-free. I have a saying with my husband because, I, and I, this is, again, this sounds a little arrogant, but I, frankly, it's true. I'm a fairly low-maintenance woman. <laughs> not all the time, but I, I mean, as, as women go, I can tend to be low-maintenance. And there are times when my husband has maybe taken advantage of that a little bit, and so my saying to his, him is, honey, I'm not siding. I'm not maintenance-free. <laughs> I may be low-maintenance, but I'm not aluminum siding. So that, that's true of our unity, too, that, uh, that it, is, it, it has been achieved by Christ, and yet it's not maintenance-free. It's not something uh, that we don't have to work at at times to maintain that unity. So that's one result. A second result is that we will know Christ. Not just about him, but a true, deep, personal knowledge of him. A third result is that we will grow in maturity as believers. As we are built up, as we are equipped, we become mature. We will be filled with the fullness of Christ, meaning we will be becoming more and more like him as we grow. Now, the purpose of this maturity as we mature in Christ, or possibly the result, I, the two things are very much related, is that we will know the truth. We will know and understand the truth, which means we will not be swayed by good-sounding sound, but false teaching. I've talked to so many people who are in difficult situations, and they say, well, but doesn't God want me to be happy? That sounds good, doesn't it? It's not necessarily true. God wants me to be holy. Um, he's not so much concerned about my happiness as my holiness. And so we won't be swayed by those good-sounding but actually false um, teaching because we will know the truth. Uh, we will not, as, as the word picture shows here, we will not be easily deceived. A second result of this maturity is that we will speak the truth in love. Actually, Paul uses that word truth as a verb in this sentence. What he literally writes is truthing in love. And the concept of, of truth as a verb, as something someone does, is very common uh, throughout Scripture. We both speak and we live out the truth uh, in, our, in our lives. It is something we do. And then the third result is that we will grow up into Christ. I love that word picture. We will grow up into Christ. Speaking the truth in love, truthing in, in love, is both what enables us to mature and also the result of our maturity uh, as well. Uh, here's what one theologian said about this. He says, Christians are attached to Christ by faith as they grow they are more closely brought into relation with him and into conformity with his character and will. But this growth, again, is not individual. We grow together. We are built up in unity. We grow as part of Christ's body, his church. We grow, we work, we are built up in love as a church, as a body of believers. 
But what does he mean here by what are the supporting ligaments? There are a lot of different opinions on that, and, and I, I, that one I wouldn't be willing to give you an absolute, but the one that made the most sense to me is that the, that's likely the leaders that Paul has ref referenced, the teachers, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, that they are the supporting ligaments of the body, that they are the ones that are, um, in a sense, holding that together. Well, I want to apply this uh, briefly with you. I, I left a lot of blank there, and I left a lot of blank there on a, a purpose. This is not covered in any of my uh, commentaries. This is all straight from Amy, which is kind of scary. Um, and, uh, and it's also a little scary because I'm going to exhort you a little bit. But please know that when I exhort you, I'm exhorting me too, um, because this, this needs to be spoken to me, uh, probably more than it needs to be spoken by me. Paul commands us to speak the truth in love to one another and, and to live out that truth with each other. Speaking the truth in love requires wisdom and it requires gentleness. It never works very well to just say, you know, that's, you know, that's wrong. That's, you know, just, that, just, that kind of speaking the truth in love um, doesn't work very well. But here's the deal. There's also something being implied here. If we're being told to speak the truth in love to one another, then the implication is on how we will respond when we have the truth spoken in love to us. How do I respond when somebody lovingly speaks truth into my life? Um, what I often see, even in believers, is reactions like, you can't judge me, don't judge me, um, or, uh, you know, don't throw the Bible at me. I had an experience, and I apologize to those of you because many of you have heard this story, uh, and this is a long time ago, probably closing in on 20 years ago. There was a, um, uh, a woman who began coming to our small group. Her name was Deborah, and after about the third or fourth time, she kind of opened up about her life, and she said, I'm really struggling. Uh, I'm about to get kicked out of my apartment, and I'm really feeling um, called to go back to my my former employment as a way to make money. And so I said to her, well, Deborah, what was your former employment? She said I was an exotic dancer. And she said she used that as a form of ministry to men, that she would dance and then she would tell them about Jesus. Now, you and I both know that that's really not a form of ministry. She did not know that. Now, in order to keep her from getting kicked out of her, um, out of her apartment, um, I bought a, a load of groceries and went over to her and I got her a space um, in case she did get kicked out of her apartment at the Open Door Mission and got them to agree to take her bird, which was a big deal for her, and uh, went over to give her these groceries. And she was, when I got there, at her sewing machine, sewing up her new outfit for her career. And uh, it was not a suit. And, uh, <laughs> and I began to speak to her about what, the choice that she was making. And, and the, this, this, was the, this was the line that did it to her. And I said, Deborah, God would never call you into sin. And she became extraordinarily angry with me. In fact, she kicked me out of her apartment. She said, yeah, thanks for the groceries, bye. And what she said to me is, you know, Amy, you have a way of hitting people over the head with the Bible. And it really shook me. Um, part, partly because Josh was with me and he was like three. But uh, it really shook me. And, and then as I was processing it later, I, I thought, you know what? If I'm living in sin, please, God, have someone love me enough to hit me over the head with the Bible. Please, God, have someone love me enough to speak truth to me. And please, God, grant me the grace to go, oh, you're right. 
and I'm wrong. And I think that's implied in what Paul is saying here. So my, my exhortation to you as well as to me is that we would be women who hear God's truth and then respond in humility to it, regardless of how we actually feel about that. Well, Paul's going to talk about that old way of life and, and the futility of that old way of life. Uh, in verses 17 through 19, he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed." So this is a really bleak picture, once again, that he's painting. When he says, I, I tell you this and I insist on it in the Lord, he's pulling the full weight of his authority behind this. He is essentially saying, I'm not telling you this. God is. God is telling you this, and you need to heed it. You cannot ignore it. And then he says, as it says here, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That is peripateo. That is walk. Do not walk as the Gentiles walk. Gentiles? Isn't everyone he's writing to a Gentile? Yeah, pretty much. That word Gentile uh, actually means those who don't know Christ. It, it could be translated, do not walk as the pagans do, or do not walk as the ungodly do. This, this statement here is the next in a, uh, in a list of formerly now statements. If you remember from chapter 2, what we're memorizing, formerly you were dead in your sins, but now God has made you alive in Christ. That is the same thing here. Formerly you lived, you walked as the Gentiles did, but now you can no longer do that. You need to walk in a renewed mind, walk in Christ instead. What Paul is talking about here is not so much individual sins, but a distorted mind. It's not so much the sins, it is the distorted way of thinking that leads to those sins. Because when your thinking is messed up, then your life is messed up. So notice these statements that he says about people who live this way, who walk this way. They have futility of their thinking, thinking that is worthless, that is useless, that is meaningless. They are darkened in their understanding. Without God, they can only live and walk in darkness because they do not have the light in which to walk. There is, there's ignorance that is in them. What, what Dr. Snodgrass says, I love this, he says they refuse to know what they know. They refuse to hear the truth. They have been hardened in their hearts, hardening of their hearts, which is a willful refusal to listen. Anyone who's ever had a toddler knows what hardening your heart is. It's no, that's it. And we say that to God sometimes. We harden our hearts. They have deceitful desires. Our desires do deceive us sometimes, don't they? We want something, and so we think, well, this is okay because, and then we think of the justification that makes it okay, even though we know what we know, um, that it's not okay. God is not rejecting people here that would otherwise follow him. They have already rejected God. And therefore, they live in darkness. Therefore, because they have rejected God, they are separated from God by their own choice. Their hearts are hard toward God. 
So to sum it all up, I thought this quote sums it up very well. Hearts made insensitive to God have set off a chain reaction that turned out the light and led to meaninglessness. So Paul here is speaking of a spiritual callousness, a loss of sensitivity to God that leads to all kinds of sin. Now the emphasis here is on sexual sin, which is a sin that tends to feed on itself incredibly and that desire for more and more and more. But really, this is true of all sin. And our culture is, is, this, this is very prevalent in our culture. How many people have we seen over and over again that seem to have it all, and yet they live in complete despair from Heath Ledger to Michael Jackson to Lindsay Lohan to Tiger Woods? It is a bleak, dark picture, but there is hope. And Paul is going to uh, now contrast that bleak picture with hope. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If the problem is a distorted mind, then the solution is a renewed mind. Renewed by Christ, a mind renewed by Christ. So Paul's going to give us three images here. The first image is to learn Christ. He says, you did not learn Christ that way, which is a firsthand personal knowledge of Christ. Walking with him, walking in him, as well as learning from him. That's the meaning of being a disciple. A disciple is a learner. And what we learn is Christ. These are the things that lead to a renewed mind. Um, this, this learning from him, this walking with him and walking in him. The second image is to take off the old self. Now, the old self is, is the person without God, and yet we tend to want to gravitate back to that old self. And so this is, this is something that has an ongoing aspect to it. It is an ongoing renewal. We don't just take off the old self once and then walk away. We repeatedly, when we, are, when we are confronted by our own sin, when we realize our own sin, we have to take off that old self. In fact, the Greek um, uh, tense of that actually affirms that this is a continual thing. So how do we do that? How do we take off that old self? Paul is saying we do that by being made new in the attitude of our minds. To be made new means um, that it is some, to be made new it means that it is something that God does. It's not something we do for or to ourselves. This, too, is an ongoing renewal. We don't come to Christ, our minds, are our minds are changed, and we move on. We are continually renewed in our minds as we learn, as we t spend time in Scripture, as we read and listen and, and uh, learn of Christ. But we do play a part in that. God does renew our minds, but we have to cooperate with him in that. We have to yield to God and allow ourselves to be made new. And that, in large part, is what the third word picture means, and that is to put on the new self. Again, this is God's activity to which we respond. But as we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, all of which Paul has explained to us, 
then that's putting on the new self. Well, I need to finish up here, and I want to talk a little bit about walking this calling, um, this worthy calling, or walking our calling in a worthy way. Paul says, do not live as the Gentiles do. I think we could reword that and say, do not live as the Americans do. Um, and I'm preaching again to myself here, but, but the, the state of our culture is pretty dire, and I'm not going to have time for all of this, but we are enamored with all forms of entertainment, from movies to movie stars, from video games to video gaming. We pay far too much attention to the opinions of the rich and the famous. Um, Dr. Snodgrass said that, the, that, it, uh, that singers, actors, and talk show hosts are the primary ethicists ethicists in our culture. I take that a step far farther. Maybe not so much now, but I think for years, Oprah Winfrey was our primary theologian. I think a whole lot of people got what their understanding of God was from Oprah. Great woman, admire her, but she's not a theologian. Um, not in the sense as a Christian um, is. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I think we're entertaining ourselves to death. I think we're numbing ourselves with entertainment, and we are investing far more time in that than we are in learning Christ. I think most people, maybe even most Christians, know more movie lines than they know scripture verses. Um, in fact, playwright Wilson Meisner is credited as saying this. By the way, Wilson Meisner lived from 1876 to 1933, and here's what he said. Hollywood is a sewer with service from the Ritz-Carlton. I think it's more true than it's ever been. 40, 50, 60 years ago, when movies were mostly innocuous, Christians asked themselves, the debate was had about whether that is an appropriate thing for, for believers to do. Now, when mostly they're objectionable, we're not asking that question. We're just assuming that it has no effect on us, and it's okay. Most of what is on TV is either profane or in name. I, they, they keep coming up with more crazy things that people, really, musical chairs, and people are going to sit and watch it um, because it's on and because it's available. My family can't even sit and watch a football game together without having to turn off the TV during the commercials. Our culture also feeds our desires. The desire for more and better things is so prevalent in our culture. We want more and more, and our culture tells us we need it, but they aren't needs at all. Our culture is very seductive, uh, and it is an understatement to say that it is difficult to not live like everyone else out there. Paul is telling us not to do it. Engage the culture for Christ? Absolutely. Live as the Americans do. In Paul's words, he would say, may it never be. We cannot both follow the world and follow Christ at the same time. Dr. Snodgrass says, in general, the more we conform to, our, to society, the less we understand our conversion. So what we're, how do we respond to that? You know, ladies, it's not just enough to turn off the TV. I think that's part of Getting rid of the old self is just not to put those worthless things before our eyes, as David said in the Psalms. We must go to school. We must learn Christ. We must be renewed in our minds. So much of the culture is driven by desires, and desires aren't bad, but they make horrible masters. And if our desires are our Lord, we're going to have 
trouble. We cannot allow pleasure and desire to become our masters. There is only one true Lord, and it's Jesus Christ. Finally, we need to put on the new woman. Consider, truly consider God's claim on our lives. Truly consider all that he has done on our behalf because he loves us so much. The only logical response is to fall down and worship and praise before him and to live a life worthy of that calling. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the greatness of the calling you have called us to. May we humbly live out obedience before you in response. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.